Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Most Notorious. I'm Eric Rivenis, and thanks for tuning in. Before we get to this interview, a quick point of business. For those of you interested in ad-free episodes of Most Notorious, for just $2 a month, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash mostnotorious. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash mostnotorious. Higher tiered options are available too for extra stuff. Uh, and as part of my Newshound tier, you do get a shout out on the podcast. And today those sh- shout outs go to Don in Invergrove Heights, Minnesota, and Catherine in Stoughton, Wisconsin. Thank you, Don and Catherine, as well as all of my other patrons for your awesome support. So let's get on with the interview. I'm so thrilled to have as my guest today, Candace Millard, New York Times best-selling author of three books. The first is called The River of Doubt, Theodore Roosevelt's Darkest Journey, which is about the former president's harrowing trip post-presidency to explore the then uncharted Amazon River. And it was the book that first introduced me to this author, me and many others, uh, including my father, who has been part of a book club for over a decade and came back raving one day about how amazing this book was. Um, She's also written Hero of the Empire, The Boer War, A Daring Escape, and The Making of Winston Churchill, another wonderful book. But she's here today to talk about Destiny of the Republic, A Tale of Madness, Medicine, and the Murder of a President, which won the Edgar Award for Best Fact Crime and my favorite of the three, although I love them all. Thank you so much for taking some time today to speak with me about this book. Uh, thanks for having me. 
So when we think about murdered presidents uh, as Americans uh, going out on a limb, <laughs> because I don't speak for everyone, of course, but I'd assume that Abraham Lincoln, John F. Kennedy are the ones we all know best. Maybe William McKinley uh, because of his vice president, Theodore Roosevelt. But James Garfield, not one of the, the better known American presidents. Um, so how did you come to choose his murder as the subject of your book? Uh, well, you're right. Not many people know anything about Garfield beyond the fact that he was assassinated. And I think that's really unfortunate because he was such an extraordinary person. Um, so I I wasn't interested and in, I didn't know much about him either. Um, and in fact, I wasn't particularly interested in writing about another president, even though my first book had been about Theodore Roosevelt. Um, I wanted another book that had a lot of science in it. And uh, so I was researching Alexander Graham Bell. And I was just doing kind of broad research, reading everything I could. And I just stumbled upon this story of him inventing something called an induction balance to try to find the bullet in Garfield after Garfield had been shot. And um, first of all, it really surprised me. I, I thought, why have I never heard this story about Alexander Graham Bell, one of the greatest inventors in history and one of, you know, just four American presidents who have been assassinated and um, and then it made me wonder who James Garfield was and why this young Alexander Graham Bell, who kind of had the world at his feet and had accomplished so much, he just stopped everything he was doing and he poured everything he had working night and day into this invention to try to help Garfield. So I wanted to find out who Garfield was, so I started researching him, and I was just blown away. I You know, as I said, he was just extraordinary. He was absolutely brilliant. He was incredibly brave. He was kind. He was decent. He was modest. Uh, he was very progressive for the time. And uh, and it just broke my heart that he had been forgotten. And I just kind of got swept up into the story. And you portray him so vividly in your book. I mean, he was an extraordinary individual. Part of his attraction for me is that he really came from humble beginnings, and he pulled himself up from poverty, a la Ragged Dick, right, uh, into an incredibly popular political figure. Yes, he um, was our last president to be born in a log cabin. He was extremely poor. His father died before he was two years old. He didn't have shoes until he was four years old in Ohio, and his mother, though, was um, was well-educated. She came from an educated family and believed that education was the future and the promise for her son and for this country. And she and her older son, um, Garfield's older brother, worked and worked to save just a little bit of money. It was like $17 so that he could go to school. And um, And they knew that not only should he be educated, but he would would take to education extremely well because he was obviously so smart. So he went to this little school in Ohio, and uh, it's now known as Hiram. And um, to pay for his first year of school, he was a carpenter and a janitor. But after that, because he was so brilliant, so while he's still just a sophomore in college, a student himself, he was made a professor of literature, mathematics, and ancient languages. And um, he became the university president when he was 26 years old. Um, while he was in Congress, he, he wrote an original proof 
of the Pythagorean theorem. Um, he was just brilliant. He, he knew the entire Neid by heart in Latin. I mean, it's just, you know, it's hard to kind of wrap our mind around um, someone in Congress um, just having such not just deep knowledge but also a broad knowledge of so many subjects and just this this thirst um for knowledge and uh just uh, this this radiating intelligence could you talk about his his political rise his time as a congressman and what issues he championed through congress in the 1860s and 1870s Sure. So he, um, you know, he was a Republican. He, uh, interestingly, never ran for office. He said that if, if people wanted to vote for him, um, he would step forward and do his duty. So he never campaigned. Um, he was asked and, um, and agreed to, you know, put his name into contention and was voted for, but he never campaigned. Um, but he was a really, really vibrant speaker. Um, so in Congress, he was, like chairman of several committees in military affairs, um, banking, currency, appropriations. Um, and he was a big proponent of hard money. Um, he helped start the Federal Department of Education. But what he felt most strongly about was fighting for first abolition. So so he um, ended up leaving Congress to, to fight in the Civil War and was a hero in the Civil War for the Union Army, um, helped uh, save Kentucky uh, for the for the Union and um, had always felt very strongly about abolition. He um, had hit a runaway slave, and while he was in Congress um, after the war, he gave an absolutely riveting and powerful and effective speech on behalf of Black suffrage. And so he was very uh, much involved in in black suffrage, also defending the Freedmen's Bureau. So those were the, the things that um, he felt very, very strongly about and was very effective in, um, in making progress in those areas. A pivotal moment for James Garfield was the 1880 Republican National Convention. C- could you explain what his role was meant to be there and how it changed over the course of the convention? Mm-hmm. So he, um, you know, as any bright young political figure, he had, of course, thought about the presidency, but he saw what this, what he called the fever for the presidency did to the people around him. And, you know, it, it, t- it took them over and it, it, it often replaced a lot of their um, ideals and values and he, he just, he didn't want to do that. And, um, so he didn't want to run for president. Um, but because he was so charismatic and such a powerful speaker, people around him were all talking about, you know, the possibility of him, him being the Republican candidate. Um, so a man named John Sherman, who was also a congressman from Ohio and was William Tecumseh Sherman's um, brother, saw all this interest in Garfield. Um, and so he thought, okay, the best way to kind of get him out of contention is to have him give my nominating address at the um, Republican convention in Chicago. And uh, so he asked Garfield to do that. So uh, Garfield went to Chicago to give this the nominating address for Sherman. Uh, but when he got up to speak, he was in this huge hall, um, about 15,000 people there. And uh, he started speaking, and his address was so beautiful and so powerful that 
was the whole room quieted. Everyone was just spellbound. And at one point he said, and so, gentlemen, I ask you, what do we want? And someone in the crowd shouted, we want Garfield. And everyone erupted, and it took him a long time to get them settled back down and asked, him for, asked for quiet and so he could finish his speech. But when they started casting the ballots, even though Garfield wasn't one of the candidates, his name kept coming up in convention, and, and, and he tried to stop it, but people kept giving their votes to Garfield. And it ended up taking 36 ballots, the most of any Republican convention, to choose the nominee for president, and it ended up being Garfield, <laughs> even though, again, he wasn't even a candidate. He tried to stop it from happening, but it just did. It was just kind of this snowball effect, and it's stunning to read the newspaper articles about the time, the coverage of the story, because there's just so much energy and excitement, and it literally just sweeps Garfield with it, and before he knows it, he is a Republican nominee for president of the United States. Would Garfield's road to a presidential victory be an easy road for him? No, not at all. Um, His opponent, um, Winfield Hancock, was also a Civil War hero. Um, And it was a a very close contest. And, um, you know, the, the country was extremely divided at that time. And even within the Garfield's own party, the Republican Party, there was this stark um, division between those who were uh, very devoted to the spoil system and those who were more progressive, like Garfield. And uh, and there was a man named Conkling, Senator Conkling, who um, Roscoe Conkling, who was the senior senator from New York, and um, and and pretty much controlled the country. He had so much power. And um, and he was furious. He wanted Grant to win the nomination again and have a third term as president. Grant was his man, and he was very close to Grant and um, was furious when Garfield was given the nomination. And so to placate him, because they needed they needed Conkling's help to win the election for Garfield, they um, forced on Garfield one of Conkling's closest associates, closest men, um, Chester A. Arthur, to be his running partner. So it was really difficult from Garfield from the beginning in every possible way. But an extraordinary thing about this election is that Garfield didn't campaign very hard, did he? <laughs> he didn't campaign at all. He, and he was told to not to. Um, he stayed at home. He loved, he had a, he had a beautiful home um, a farmhouse in Ohio, um, now known as Lawn Field. It's a, it's a national historic site now. But um, And he wanted to be there. He wanted to be with his children. He wanted to be with his books. He wanted to be working on his farm. And he knew that if he won, it would bring him a particular kind of sorrow to be president. He knew it would separate him from all the things that he loved and thrust him into this continual warfare um, and so he stayed at home. People came to him. You know, he actually gave the first campaign speech in a in a foreign language. He, he spoke German, and he a, a group of German immigrants came to him, and he spoke to them on from his front porch um, in German. And um, and he had um, several um, groups of African Americans, former slaves, 
who who believed in him and were so excited about his nomination. In fact, Frederick Douglass um, campaigned for him, and um, some of these groups would come to him at Lawn Field, and he would speak with them, but, but he didn't go on the campaign trail at all or anything like it. Roscoe Conkling was, was quite a strange and compelling figure, wasn't he? <laughs> Yeah, he was. He he's kind of the perfect villain, you know. He um was just such a character. So, it, you know, as I said, he was um, you know, incredibly powerful, but he was also just uh this vain preening guy. He he liked to wear these uh canary yellow waistcoats and he would write in lavender ink and he had this really great spit curl in the middle of his forehead and he you know, recoiled at the slightest touch, um, and he was just incredibly, incredibly vain. But as the senior senator from New York, he controlled the New York Customs House, which at that time was the largest federal um, office in the United States. It controlled 70% of the country's customs revenue. And so he controlled that, and he controlled the patronage in his state, and he expected and demanded complete and unquestioning loyalty from anyone around him. And um, and as I said, he was enraged by Garfield's nomination and election, and he was determined to try to control Garfield and, and really frustrated uh, that in the end he couldn't. So the spoil system, um, the system of patronage, It's a theme that runs throughout the entire book. And when you introduce Charles Gateau, this becomes an important part of his personal story. And it really begins when Gateau tries to be involved in Garfield's presidential campaign, right? That's right. So um, Charles Gateau, if you read most accounts of Garfield's assassination, he just called a disgruntled office seeker. But, uh, you know, that doesn't, cover even the smallest part of it. He was this uniquely American character. He um, he was, uh, you know, I, I call him a self-made madman. He was really smart, actually, and um, very clever, um, but he was, without question, mentally ill. So he had tried everything, and he had failed at everything. He had tried law evangelism. He had even lived for a time in a free love commune, you know, in the 1800s. Um, but he had been rejected even there. The the women in the commune had nicknamed him Charles Get Out. But he um, believed that he was going to do something great with his life. And he believed that he was brilliant in his own way. And, um, and he just kind of uh, was just extremely scrappy, as I said. So he... Um, would travel all around the country by train. He never bought a ticket. He would just jump on and off of trains. He would move from boarding house to boarding house without paying his rent. Um, He worked for a time as a bill collector, and he just kept anything that he managed to collect. So when he um, hears about Garfield's nomination, he becomes obsessed with Garfield and he um, moves to New York, and he thinks that he's going to campaign for Garfield, and he's going to single-handedly make Garfield president. 
so he he goes to the campaign offices every day, and finally they say, sure, sure, you can give a speech for us. And he gives one speech. I mean, he kind of steps on stage, kind of rambles for a few minutes, and then leaves. But he, in his mind, when Garfield is elected, he thinks, well, I've done that then. And he believes very fiercely in the spoil system, and so he thinks, okay, it's first come, first serve. I'm going to go to Washington now and say, look, I helped get you elected. Now you need to um, make me a, a consul for Paris, I think is what he wanted. So some just extreme idea. Um, he, he wasn't remotely qualified for any position, much less as an ambassador. But, um, but again, in his mind, he was very delusional. He thought that, um, that he deserved this. And um, so he moves to Washington and just immediately begins to stalk Garfield. And now a quick word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So, so Lincoln had been assassinated approximately 15 years earlier. You'd think that America would have learned its lesson after that, and presidential security would have been improved. But it's pretty shocking to read these accounts of Garfield freely walking around the streets of Washington, D.C., Right. I'd love it if you could explain what protections were afforded to him and how easily accessible he was to people. Mm -hmm. Essentially, he had no protection and didn't want it. You know, he, um, I mean, again, as you say, this is is 16 years after Lincoln's assassination, but Garfield, all he had was this aging police officer who kind of was was sort of around and and he had his young personal secretary who tried to filter people out but because the spoil system was so strong I mean he was expected to meet with the public with office seekers for you know a huge range of offices within the federal government um, from 9 o'clock to 1 p.m., 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. every day in his office, one-on-one, the president was. And to, so to him, it's not, he doesn't think of it as being dangerous. He thinks of it just being incredibly frustrating. You know, this is not how he wants to spend his time or his life. You know, he's like, okay, I'm president, so I want to do something serious. I want to think. I want to get things done. But so much of his time is just used up. Um, meeting with office seekers and um, but but he was completely free and he you know he knew obviously that assassination was uh, was potential but he 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 thought you know it's not going to happen and I'm not going to waste my time worrying about it so he walked all around the city by himself he traveled all around the country um, by himself and in fact after Guiteau got to Washington and started um, stalking Garfield, and then later becomes obsessed, and and we can talk about this later, but decides that God wants him to kill Garfield. He, at one point, Garfield leaves the White House. He walks down the street to his Secretary of State's house, and the two men walk through the streets of Washington, and Guiteau is following them the entire way, holding a loaded gun. So when do things change for Gateau in in his mind? Is there some specific breaking point? How does he go from being obsessed with getting a job to actually wanting to kill the president? Yeah, so he goes to the White House every day um, asking to see Garfield. And he actually gets into 
the president's office. When Garfield's in it one day and he hands him a copy of this speech that, that he wrote for the campaign and he thinks, okay, that's it. You know, I should get the, num- the, my assignment any day. Um, and it doesn't come. And finally, he's obviously so erratic and strange that they, they try to kind of, filter him out of the of the of the White House. Um, and then he starts going to the Secretary of State's office every day. And finally he stops the Secretary of State. Again, you know, the idea of just a man walking up to the Secretary of State and talking to him on the street is so difficult for us to understand. But this is what happened. And he approaches Blaine, the Secretary of State, and says, Yo, you know, I'm Charles Guiteau and of course, you know, I should be getting this assignment. And Blaine is just finished with him and he says, Look, it's never going to happen. You need to stop. I don't ever want to see you again. And Guteau, who again is, it, it, and he's desperate at this point. I mean, he he has no job. He 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 doesn't have enough to eat. He doesn't have his 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 clothes are fraying and fall and falling apart. He he's moving from boarding house to boarding house whenever the rents do. And so he goes back to this little room he's rented, and he lies down on the on this cot he has. And he has what he says later is this this divine inspiration that God comes to him and says, you know, Garfield isn't a true rep- Republican, and he's not who should be in the White House. It should be Chester Arthur, and and so you're going to make Chester Arthur president. And Guiteau said, you know, later that it was nothing personal; it was just God's will. We will be right back. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws, I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. 
On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, And was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. And we have returned. So on July 2nd, 1881, James Garfield would be assassinated by Gateau. What preparations did Gateau make to kill the president? And did it go the way he had planned? So it, it, this happened over a course of several weeks, and like I said, he's he's regularly stalking Garfield. So he he sits on a bench um, in the park across from the White House, waiting for him to come out every day. He follows him around. At one point, he thinks he might shoot him in in church. He follows him to his church, and he kind of st- you know decides maybe through this window I could. Um, he follows him to uh, Garfield's wife was very, very ill, nearly died at one point. And um, as she's starting to recover, he, he takes her to a train station. She's going to go to New Jersey to, to recover. And um, Guteau thinks about shooting Garfield then, but he thinks, well, you know, Lucretia's ill, I'll wait. Um, so finally, he thinks, okay, the day has come. He He finds out that Garfield is going to... Um, also go on a trip. He's going to be in the train station, the Baltimore Potomac train station, which is right on the National Mall. It actually used to stand right where the um, National Museum of Art, um, the Smithsonian National Museum of Art now stands. And, and as a side note, Theodore Roosevelt was actually the person to finally um, pull down that, that station. It was really dangerous because there are tracks right on the mall and trains were often skipping the tracks and killing people. So anyway, he Guteau goes to this train station and waits for Garfield, and um, Garfield pulls up in a carriage uh, with a secretary of state who just insisted on coming with him. He, again, no guard or anything. Um, he steps out. He steps into the uh, to the train station, and Guteau immediately steps out of the shadows and um, shoots him twice. The the first bullet just goes through his arm, but the second bullet um, hits him in the back. So chaos, of course, ensues. Gateau doesn't get very far. and In fact, he doesn't make any real effort to escape, does he? No, he doesn't. In fact, he had thought about this for a long time, not just about the assassination, but what would happen after the assassination. Because his particular brand of madness, his, his delusions led him to believe that 
um, this would make him famous. So this was his moment of greatness. And he believed that Chester Arthur would be so grateful to him for making him president that, you know, he would reach out to him and he uh, it was, uh, would, of course, pardon him. And then, you know, um, and then Juteau thought that, that he then would run for, for president because he would be so popular. So he had actually written a letter ahead of time um, to William Tecumseh Sherman saying, you know, I've, I've assassinated the president. Um, I'm going to be taken to this jail. Please send out the troops to release me. So, but things immediately don't go the way Guiteau had kind of envisioned them. You know, Garfield, he's forgotten today, but, but the people of the, of the country loved him. He was incredibly popular and beloved and, um, because, you know, he represented something for everyone. You know, he, again, he, he come from poverty. He had pulled himself out. He had made something out of himself. He was incredibly smart. He was incredibly kind and progressive. So, um, there's just a lot of interest and pride in him. And there was this immediate, not just chaos, but fury when he was shot in this train station. And, Guto was immediately captured and people are screaming for him to be to be lynched right there or to be thrown under the under the um wheels of a train. Wow. And and obviously there is great attention paid to President Garfield who's lying there on the floor. These first few minutes of his care are, are of course very crucial for him. What kind of medical attention does he receive initially? So, you know, today we just can't even imagine this. So, you know, here's this this man who, this president who's just been shot. He's lying on the floor of the train station. You can't imagine a, a filthier spot. And um, and he's, he's finally, they find this old horsehair and hay mattress and put him on it. And they take him upstairs to a room above the, above the station. And Lincoln's son who um, is actually uh, Garfield's Secretary of War, he remembers that there's a man named Dr. Dr. Willard Bliss. His first name is actually Doctor. So Dr. Dr. Willard Bliss, who had been with President Lincoln at Lincoln's deathbed and um, was known to Garfield, and he was nearby. So Lincoln's son calls for, for Bliss to come to the train station. And he and several other doctors immediately begin to probe the wound in Garfield's back w- without any sterilization at all. So they're just incredibly um, filthy, um, bacteria-coated fingers and instruments. And, you know, av- obviously no no painkillers, nothing, um, just probing for, for this bullet. So he's in unbelievable pain and danger at that time, not just from having been shot, but from the medical care he's receiving and um and finally they decide to take him to the white house because at that time if you were sick the last place you wanted to go was to a hospital they were so overcrowded they were so dirty they were so disease ridden um the the white house wasn't much better it was falling apart it was it was infested with rats but that's the best they had so they they took him to the white house and um dr bliss went along with them but I mean, Garfield ends up having 12 different doctors probe this wound and in, in reinfecting him with um, bacteria again and again and again. So there was a time, right, when it was thought that Garfield might recover. 
and what seemed to be a recovery produced a giant collective sigh of relief from Americans. That's right. You know, he he was this tall, strong, healthy man, um, and he did fight off the initial infection. You know, obviously, the bullet itself dragging in, uh, you know, bits of his clothing and things and introduced infection itself. But he fights off that initial infection. The problem is that the uh, the probings just never end, and so it's just, you know, his body just can't fight off all these um all the infection that's being introduced every single day again and again and again um from Dr. Bliss and um and they think at first that he's going to die right away they assume and then when he doesn't you're right everybody uh you know there are all these prayers out and they're 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 so happy and people are sending all these things to the to the White House somebody sends a cow because they hear that he really likes milk so there's actually this cow tied up on the front lawn of the of the White House and people are sending all their um, different homemade remedies and their suggestions and they even you know it's it's summer it's July and it's incredibly hot and sticky um, and uh, in Washington DC and so they the um, the Navy and the Engineering Corps actually um, rigs up the first air conditioning system in the White House to try to to cool the president. So everybody's trying to help him. What they don't understand is that his own doctor is slowly killing him. Is Garfield still conducting presidential business while bedridden? No, he wasn't. In fact, nobody really was at that time. Um, his poor secretary, who again, was like 24 years old, this really, really great guy who's incredibly devoted to him, is just trying to keep things together, you know. And Chester Arthur has just disappeared because everyone assumed that Chester Arthur would be thrilled that he would just be waiting in the wings for Garfield to die so he could step in and become president. And and Conkling obviously assumed that that would happen too. But um, the opposite has happened with Chester Arthur. He is sickened by the shooting. And the last thing he wants is for people to think that he wants Garfield's death. So he is not even in Washington. He's squirreled away somewhere, um, sickened and sad and useless. And um, and so the White House, the administration is just kind of limping along and there's nothing in place. There, there's no precedent for something like this. You know, Lincoln died right away. And Garfield is definitely too sick. I mean, he can't even read. You know, he has to, his wife comes in and reads to him. And, and he's, he's, he's aware, he's clear-headed, but he's um, very, very ill. And so um, everyone's just scrambling to figure out what's going to happen and um, how they can, can keep everything afloat. And it's during this time, and, and you mentioned this earlier, um, that Alexander Graham Bell, frustrated as all Americans were, realizes that he might have the ability to invent a device that could help find the bullet. So he invents this device and then travels to Washington, D.C. with it, right, to help the president? Right. So he So this is you know, 16 years or so before the invention of the medical x-ray. So there's no way way to tell where the bullet is. And Bliss, the doctor, is convinced. Um, so it went into 
Gar- the bullet entered Garfield's right side, and he's convinced that's where it is, but actually it's moved over to the left when he doesn't know. So everyone thinks that, um, you know, they need to find out where the bullet is, and and Bell understands that the last thing you want is to continue with this probing. So he wants to find out where the bullet is so he can stop these this incessant probing. And so he um, he actually had invented something this induction bounce um, to try to get rid of static in um, telephone lines that were caused by by other lines next to it. It was just causing static, and so he had invented this. And he realized that if he if he hooks it up to a telephone receiver, it can be used as a metal detector. And so I mean, but but. You know, that's his theory, and he's just making this up out of whole cloth. So he actually had a laboratory in Washington, D.C. He had won the Volta Prize um, not long before this, and had used that money to open this lab. And so he was there working when Garfield was shot, and he, he has all these other plans and ideas that he's working on, um, but he drops everything, and he just works night and day on perfecting this induction mounts, and he believes that it will work, but he doesn't know for sure. So he does things like he, he gets a slab of beef in and he shoots into it and tries to find the bullet that way. And he he goes to um, a place where there are a lot of, you know, there are these veterans from the Civil War walking around with bullets inside them, and he tests it on that. And again and again, it proves that it works. So he contacts the, the White House, and he gets hold of Bliss, and he says, look, I've got this invention, this induction balance that I can use to try to find the bullet in the president, um, will you let me try? And Bliss at this point is desperate because Garfield now has taken another turn for the worse and he knows that the world is watching and so he um, he allows Bell to come and try. So Bell's invention eventually is proven to work, but it doesn't save Garfield's life. Could you talk about this attempt by Bell to use it on Garfield to save him? So um, Bell does go to the White House and he uses induction balance on Garfield, um, and it's inconclusive. And he's um, incredibly frustrated. He can't figure out why it wasn't working. And he goes back to his laboratory, and he's just, you know, it's late at night and he's working, and he, he realizes, wait a second, you know, this is the President of the United States, he may have been on something that was very new and fancy at that time, which is a mattress with metal coils. <laughs> and so he contacts the White House and they confirm, yes, he actually the president did, is on his mattress. And so obviously, you know, a mattress with metal coils is going to affect a metal detector. Um, but, but more than that, you know, Bliss, because he was convinced that the bullet was on the right side of Garfield's body, and because he had stated that publicly, would only let Bell run the induction bounce over the right side, and the bullet was on the left. So anyway, after Garfield dies, and they conduct the autopsy, and they find out that where the bullet is, and that the cause of death was massive infection, you know, Bell is vindicated, and the... um Induction balance actually goes on to save countless lives. It's used in the Russo-Japanese War. It's used in the Boer War. Um, and it was really, really effective and important medical tool until the invention of the, of the medical x-ray, as I said, which was about 16 years later. But um, anyway, so Garfield continues to deteriorate. 
And finally, he realizes that he's going to die, and he doesn't want to die in the White House. Again, it's falling apart. It's disgusting. And he has always loved the sea, and he wants to go to the sea. And um, so there's a a rich um, person in New Jersey who donates his cottage, and um, and they outfit, they totally change this uh, train. They outfit it so they can remove everything inside of this train car and they can put a bed in it, into it. And they um, take Garfield to New Jersey and the tracks all along the way are lined with people. And um, they take him to this cottage and this cottage um, is beautiful and it's, it's right on the coast. But um, they have to lay these special tracks to take it to take the train right up to the to the door of the cottage and um when it, the train gets there it can't kind of make it up this hill so there are all these people who are standing around watching and it's just this incredibly moving moment they step out of the crowd and they lift they bodily lift this train car and push it up to the to the door of the cottage for their for their wounded president and um and Garfield is um put into this room where he can see the sea and um and he has his family and his friends with him and he uh, is talking to a friend one night and he is suddenly in incredible pain and he dies um soon after that and now another quick break let's get back to the interview is the country aware after the president is moved that he's taken a turn for the worse? They are, right. And so so Bliss had been giving, um, sending out medical bulletins, and they had been put up on bulletin boards and sent by telegram. So so people are following, and, you know, there are, you know, dozens of news stories every day about the assassination, about the president, every angle of the story. I mean, it took me months just to go through the New York Times coverage alone. Um, so everybody is, as you can imagine, everyone in the country is completely riveted to the story. And um, by this point, they do understand that um, that he's going to die. And um, and when he does, um, after the autopsy, he is um, um, brought back and he lays in state. And then um, he's buried in um, in Cleveland in the cemetery there in Cleveland. And you know, again, because he was president for such a short time, he's been forgotten, and this incredibly tragic event in our nation's history has been largely forgotten. But at the time, you know, the the country was just devastated, and I think that part of their intense grief came from knowing that he would be forgotten, knowing that, you know, this kind and brave and decent human being and a person I think would have been one of our great presidents um, would be forgotten with time. So you deftly weave these two nail-biting narratives together in your book. Not only this tale of life and death for the president, but also Gateau's story, which, which includes his trial. Tell us about his trial, if you don't mind, including his defense and the eventual outcome for him. So this is um, one of the first uh, attempts at an insanity defense. And um, the country, you know, the American people are um, 
they are determined to see Guto hanged, and to them there's gonna, there can be no other other outcome. Um, but obviously the the trial has to go through, and it's it's really a circus, you know, because Guto is is just such a character, and he and and he, the only person he can get really to defend him is his poor long-suffering brother-in-law you know he had a sister who loved him and and largely raised him and her husband happens to be a lawyer but he's like a tax attorney or something and uh, you know he's doing his best but but Guteau is sitting behind him constantly shouting things and um and attacking him his own lawyer and um it's just this circus and um and the and the prosecution you know is determined to um have him found guilty and so they carefully go through his entire life so you know I th- often people will read this and say how can you know all of these things about Ginto how can you know what he was thinking um, and the answer is that because he was a he gave all these interviews after his arrest he he wrote a memoir but also during this trial they go through every part of his life and they bring, bring people from his family and he talks about he talks about the the moment he thought that god had chosen him for something special in his life he talked about the moment that he he felt that god was telling him to kill the president so um the the trial transcript is huge i i copied the entire thing and and spent months with it, um, and it goes into great detail, not just about the assassination, but about Guteau himself and what he was thinking. And um, it's very obvious that he's mentally ill and that he should have gotten help, you know, a long time before and that he should have never been allowed to be a danger to anyone, let alone the President of the United States. But, um, but again, the American people are, are determined to see him hanged, and so he um, finally is is found guilty and sentenced to death. Is is the execution pretty straightforward? Is is it unique in any way? You know, yeah, he um, so he asks that he might be able to determine the moment of his death, and what he wants to do, and the and strangely, the guard lets him. He's written um, a song or a poem that he wants to um, wants to give. He wants to perform really um, on the gallows, and so uh, they bring him in. They set up the gallows in this prison, and um, and he goes up and he recites his poem. And this kind of strange, high-pitched voice is called "Going to the Lordy," and the 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 signal that he's um, decided upon with the executioner is that when he's ready, he's going to drop this piece of paper that has a poem on it. So he delivers the poem, and he drops the paper, and he's hanged. What is your personal view on Garfield's legacy? What, what's important to remember about him? Well, I think that, as I said, I think that he would have been one of our great presidents, and I think the main reason is that he didn't want to be president. And so he didn't have to um, sacrifice his ideals and his values. He didn't owe anyone anything. You know, he, uh, again, he didn't even campaign. You know, he, so he, he came into the office fully intact and he had a very 
um, clear vision of of what he wanted for the country, what he hoped for the country, and I think he was incredibly um, progressive uh, for the time. And so I think that you know, had he lived, it's quite possible that we would have been much farther, much earlier on things like rights for for free slaves and uh, relations with the South and um, and cleaning out uh, corruption in government. But I think that we eventually got there. And with Winchester Arthur, well, obviously we did, but, it, you know, I think even with his death, we got there faster than we would have without him because Chester Arthur came in and strangely, Chester Arthur made this astonishing transformation that nobody expected, not even himself. And he ended up, even though, Obviously, he was not a great president, but he tried. You know, he was an honest president, and he tried to be the kind of president that Garfield would have been um, had he lived. And um, I think largely that's that's his legacy. It's similar in some ways to to Lyndon Johnson uh, after John Kennedy's assassination. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, taking up the mantle of yeah, civil rights. Do Do you attribute Coteau's actions? completely to mental illness? I do, absolutely. And I I actually have a lot of sympathy for Guteau. You know, I I spent many years working on this book, and I, um, you know, it's kind of impossible not to form an opinion about the the characters you're writing about and um, and doing a lot of deep research. And um, obviously I came to really, really admire Garfield and, and I, in fact, I remember the moment I wrote about his death. Um, I called my husband, and I was in tears, and I said, "I, I don't want to write this scene." You know, I mean, as if I could. It was like 130 years at that point after Garfield's death. You know, as if I could stop it from happening. Um, but, but you know, Guiteau. I mean, it's it, if you know anything about him, it's it's painfully clear that he was sick. You know, he was mentally ill, and. Thank God. I mean, we're 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 still not perfect in this country and helping helping those who suffer from this illness, but we've gotten a lot better. And um, and he needed help, but you know, he lived in a time when and and his family actually tried to help him, but he lived in a time when you could just disappear. You know, so again and again, when it would get to the point where his insanity was obvious and dangerous, and people would start the process of you know, forcing him into some sort of asylum to get him some sort of help, he would just leave. And nobody knew where he was. You know, he would just be completely off the radar. And um, he would just pop up somewhere else and just start again. And so there was just, there was no way to um, pin him down and, and get him the help he needed. And at, at the very least, keep him from hurting somebody else. Um, but, yeah, I, I actually have a great deal of sympathy for Guteau. So for people interested in learning more about you and your work, you do have a website, right? That's right, I do. CandaceMillard.com. Perfect. Well, one last question. Uh, what was the research process for you like in, in writing this book? And what were some of the, the primary sources you used? And was the process for writing this book unique in any way from the other books you've written? 
Well, um, with my other books, they've taken me usually to other countries, you know, South Africa and the Brazilian Amazon. And from the next book I'm writing on, I'm, I'm going to be in Zanzibar and Uganda this summer and a lot of, you know, research in the UK. Um, and this was, you know, very much an American story. Um, um, and I'm actually, I, I'm from Ohio originally. I was born and raised in Ohio. So it felt, you know, very personal to me in a lot of ways. But obviously the largest um, resource is the Library of Congress of Presidential Papers. I love working there. It's just really an incredible place. And the coolest thing about it is that anybody can go. Anybody can go and see, you know, America's treasures. You just go with your driver's license and you get a reader ID card and you can step into this world and, you know, you can hold the letters of our president. So so Garfield's papers are there, his wife's papers, Chester Arthur, Roscoe Conkling. So I spent weeks um, just working in the presidential papers at the Library of Congress. Um, I also, um, you know, spent a lot of time at, at Garfield's home um, in Mentor, Ohio, which is, which I said is a national historic site now. And I'm, I, the people who who protect his legacy there are really extraordinary and um, and do such a good job. And I would encourage everyone to go see this house. It's still 80% original to when, when Garfield lived there. And, and, you know, his Lucretia, his wife, started the first president, presidential library um, with some funds that were given to her by the American people after Garfield's death. And she used part of that to create this library and then later sent, um, you know, his papers ended up in the Library of Congress. But there's still quite a few things there, including a wreath that Queen Victoria sent for the for the funeral. So and a few other archives. I mean, this this was interesting in that it seemed there were lots of little pieces all in different, you know, it was kind of fun. It was kind of like a treasure hunt. I would find like, you know, there, it starts with this this um, crash of the steamship that Guiteau is on, and there happens to be this tiny little archive in Connecticut <laughs> that I found that I actually was really hard to reach them because it was in the winter, and they're only there a couple times, and there was a huge snowfall. So anyway, things like that um, are just make it really interesting and fun, and um, and you feel like a detective. So I, I always, research is always my favorite part of the process. Are there any physical artifacts still left from these events? So in the um, National Museum of Health and Medicine, um, which at, when I was doing the research was at Walter Reed, which has since closed down, they put it in this really fancy new um, building, but they actually have the six-inch section of Garfield's spine um, where the bullet went through. So the bullet you know, didn't hit any vital organs. It didn't hit his spinal cord, but it did go through his spinal column. And um, so they used this piece of his spine um, during the trial, and uh, they had this this red plastic pin going through the hole where the where the bullet traveled, and um, and that's still in that museum. Um, they also have a jar that's filled with pieces of Guiteau's brain. So. So after he was hanged and buried, they exhumed his body and um, took it to study to see if you could find uh, physical signs of insanity. And they actually divided his brain and they sent pieces of it um, around the country to different um, scientists and experts. And um, they ended up, you know, sending them back saying, you know, he he probably had syphilis, but that's all they could see. But they still have this jar (laughs) of his brain. Um, and then they also have, bizarrely, they have um, pieces of his skeleton, of Guiteau's skeleton, so like his femur, wrist bone, 
Um, and when I saw it, again, it was at Walter Reed, but it was like in this drawer, and it also had pieces of John Wilkes Booth skeleton. And it says it's like the assassin's drawer. <laughs> it's very, very strange, yeah. But, um, yeah, those are there. I don't know if just anybody can go see it, but, you know, if you're – if you know, I was obviously working on a project to explain what I was doing, and um, they let me see it. Well, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for taking some time to talk with me today. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Again, my guest has been Candace Millard, author of Destiny of the Republic, A Tale of Madness, Medicine, and the Murder of a President. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.